The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we track the fortunes of Radio 2 and new Radio 1 breakfast host Nick Grimshaw in the latest Rajar listening figures. And B2B and Netflix roll out the big guns in the battle for on-demand TV viewing. Plus, fallout at News International after the Sunday Times publishes a controversial Gerald Scarf cartoon. We also talk TV with Great British Menu, the following, and the climax to BBC Four's Borgen. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined this week by a new Media Talk guest, former Radio 1 producer and one-time Channel 4 radio exec, Sam Steele. Hello. We're also joined for the first part of the show by The Guardian's media business correspondent, Mark Sweeney. But before all of that, it's time to talk Rajars, the radio industry's quarterly listening figures. Highlights this time round were a record quarter for Radio 2, which had more than 15 million listeners. Not quite so good news for Radio 1, though, which was down half a million listeners year on year as controller Ben Cooper retunes it to a younger audience. Nick Grimshaw took over from Chris Moyles on Breakfast, of course. And there was another record over at BBC Radio 6 Music, which was up to 1.9 million listeners. This is the station, of course, that the BBC famously tried to axe not long ago. I spoke to John Myers, the former chief executive of the Radio Academy, and also former chief executive of GMG Radio, and asked him what he made of the figures. This is a staggering result by Radio 2. To hit 15.1 million listeners is an amazing figure. And I don't think anyone would have realised it would ever have got to that number. So the real question, though, that you have to ask yourself in all of this is that is Radio 2 performing brilliantly or is commercial radio performing badly and you know that's been certainly the the chatter on the streets over the last couple of days and the fact is is that radio 2 is doing some amazing things you know the radio they did the radio 2 day they do the folk awards they do so much diversity uh, certainly off peak than than on peak but also you know they've got a lunchtime phone in uh, debate where they're, they're discussing things like obesity and cancer i heard the other day they were talking about funerals and the of dying and stuff like that and yet it's amazingly appealing and in commercial radio you've still got you know a huge amount of people tuning into commercial radio but i think the big question is the brands and, and how much hours they're losing so they're not so much losing reach although you know there are some year and year falls but i guess the concern is about the number of hours or average hours that people are tuned into these commercial radio stations. And I think the commercial radio industry, while still being very successful and very popular, will be concerned about the loss of average hours. And you think, John, this reflects maybe a lack of investment or a lack of sort of uh, original content on the part of commercial radio rather than anything that Radio 2 is doing? Because, I mean, it hasn't really done anything particularly sort of different in the last year. All very good, but no sort of major changes. Well, Radio 2, you know, is very consistent, but it's also consistently different. You know, it does things on the air that people look at and they put an awful lot of content in and they very rarely change the schedule, do they? That's one of the things. In commercial radio, the schedule is often very changed. And it has been, over the last couple of years, a lot of change in commercial radio. You know, a lot of radio stations have changed their names, changed their brands, and also changed the direction of how they were going. But if you look around commercial radio, there's some very good breakfast shows. I think everyone would say that. You go in commercial radio, some great talent, whether it's um, Absolute, uh, and Capital, by the way, in Yorkshire with uh, Hursty. He's there celebrating 10 years on the breakfast show in Yorkshire, still performing brilliantly. Where radio stations, I think, are losing hours is 
when they go to their normal music format there's there's still a demand for brands you know there's a demand for the capital format but the heart and the real and the smooths and brands like that they're in danger of sounding a little bit the same so i think you know they've got to work on that and i do believe that the success of commercial radio has to be a mixture of great brands but finding some great personalities as well Radio 2 saw record audiences for uh, the likes of Jeremy Vine and Ken Bruce and uh, Simon Mayo and Steve Wright, I think. Interestingly, Chris Evans w- wasn't quite at his peak, but but not far off. It sounds strange, uh, John, to say that a station with 50 million listeners might be a problem for the BBC. But is there a stage where Radio 2 uh, you know, becomes too big and it threatens to sort of quash the, uh, the commercial uh, opposition and uh, you know, the BBC Trust and certainly some of the commercial groups will ask the BBC to do something about it, maybe make it more distinctive and uh, inevitably, as a result, you know, have a, a slightly lower reach well i can understand why that argument is made but really if you listen to radio 2 uh, and i've done for you know certainly intently over the last couple of years they are very different they put in an awful lot of content there's very rarely two songs played back to back on radio 2 there's always some great content and of course they have the benefit of not playing commercials and that is a big benefit to the bbc so i don't accept the argument that it is a problem for the bbc i actually think commercial radio need to focus on themselves and say what is it that we can do that can improve the amount of time people listen to our radio stations but let me be absolutely clear about this commercial radio is still hugely successful the brands while they may be losing some audience are being able to be sold much more effectively uh, to advertisers than they ever were before but i do think that you need to look at the audience that commercial radio is presenting to clients and say how can we get them to listen a little bit longer and sadly the only way i think you can get audiences to listen longer is to provide them with a reason to listen longer that was john myers there many thanks to him sam what did you make of what he had to say well first off i have to say i love john myers voice he's got such a beautiful mellifluous tone to it i could listen to him all day he should be on the radio shouldn't he He should be on the radio (laughs) not just running it but i do agree with the comments he made um about whether radio 2 is doing really well or commercial radio is not doing as well as it it should be doing um and he's absolutely right when he says that there's an awful lot of content on Radio 2, there's an awful lot of content on on pretty much all the BBC radio stations. Um, And in an age where you have Spotify and iTunes, you have to ask yourself whether just playing back-to-back music is going to be enough to differentiate yourself. So why would anyone listen to Heart or Magic uh, all day long when actually they can program now, they can very easily program their own playlists. So I think commercial radio has got to start investing in content uh, which is obviously expensive and and that's what they've not been doing and they've been doing much less of it over the last few years and what did you make of the uh, the changes at radio one grimshaw's coming at breakfast taken over from uh, chris moyles of course part of their efforts to attract a younger audience and, uh, and i'm sure they will and he, he was only forty thousand listeners down on moyles last audience so that's a bit of a triumph frankly because you might have expected a, a much bigger churn with a change like that absolutely i mean obviously uh, the n- newspapers all you know run with a oh my god radio one's lost a load of listeners from its breakfast slot but any new incoming presenter will lose some of the old listeners before he builds his new one so that's not a big surprise um i think nick grimshaw is brilliant on radio one breakfast he's exactly who they should have on radio one breakfast and he's somebody that we looked at when we were developing 
Channel 4's radio station to present our breakfast show, and that was three, four years ago now. I think Ben Cooper, the controller of Radio 1, has done a good job with the um, the current line-up of shows. He's got a really difficult task. Uh, radio 1's remit is to broadcast to 14 to 24-year-olds. And by their very nature, 14 to 24-year-olds live in a very uh, fast-evolving social culture. Their habits change, their consumption change, what they want to listen to changes. So it's really hard to connect with them. And Moyles was probably in the breakfast slot for two years too long. His average age of his audience was was akin to a Radio 2 listener, which is why they've all gone over to Radio 2, because they should have been there in the first place. So... Um, I think that Radio 1 is is on the right track, but the real story, whether or not it's been successful, will be in looking in more detail in the radars at what they're getting on Sunday nights. Because Sunday night is when their core audience is available to listen. That is your 14 to 20-year-olds who aren't watching the big serials on TV and are in their rooms getting ready uh, to go to school or to work the next day, and they listen to the radio. And I, I didn't have the radar figures to see whether Sunday night's up or down. But f- but that's the feeder uh, audience for Radio 1. They need to make sure that they're connecting on a Sunday night to feed people in and keep them in during the week. And I hope that, that Nick Grimshaw is going to do this for him. He should be out on the town having a great time. He should be doing what his listeners are doing. It's very hard for Radio 1 to keep up with its audience because it's the BBC and the BBC doesn't move quickly. It's like a super tanker. So trying to connect with a fast-moving audience when you're in a super tanker is a, is a real challenge and I think they're doing very well at it at the moment. And Mark, I understand you've been doing a lot of decorating recently. That must involve some radio listening. Are you a one, two or six music man? Well, it's kind of stuck on Radio 1, but there's no no real reason for that. I wouldn't say I'm a loyalist. It just happens to be stuck there and I'm too painty to bother changing the uh, the DAB. No, I'm not being ageist here, but you're, you're too old for Radio 1. You're not doing Ben Cooper any favours. Get off now. Get follow, a six music Follow Moyles. Yeah, follow Moyles, indeed, <laughs> wherever he's going. Well, well, Sam, will he come back to Radio 1, or will he will he stick with King Herod or whatever he's playing on stage right now? <laughs> I think Moyles needs to develop a broader media career, um, and I think he's keen to, to move into TV, uh, so he's probably going to concentrate on that. Well, next up, it's time to talk about Sky's new pay-as-you-go offering, which will allow sports fans to watch football, cricket, golf and doubtless many other sports on a one-off basis without having to pay for a dish subscription uh mark is it going to be nine pound 99 for a day pass it sure is it's caught it's gone a buzz on twitter most people seem to think it's probably being charged at too high a price but if you're sky you've got to look at it two ways don't you if you put it too low well next thing you know everyone's going to be leaving their tv subscriptions it's about 42 pounds a month uh for for a package of six sky sports channels it's about as cheap as you can get you multiply that by 12 multiply that by 10 million and you've got a lot of money so sky's got to be careful on its pricing so it might look expensive but jeremy derrick was saying today well hang on a minute 2000 2013 is a pretty damn good year for pay TV sports. So there'll be a couple of Ashes uh, Ashes tests with Australia. There'll be plenty of rugby. Um, there's a Lions tour. Um, and, of course, there's lots of premiership, premiership matches. So you could get a couple of games and a, and a few other events for, for 9.99 if you pick your days wisely. So that means you, you don't have to have any sort of Sky subscription for this. You can just go and cherry-pick the particular events you're interested in for, uh, for as you say, a relatively little uh, cash, although, well, you know, fairly expensive on a one-off basis. 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're looking to branch out. You've got rivals out there like Netflix and 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 um, Love Film and various other companies offering sort of without the need for a subscription package and a TV dish. And Sky's got to look to get into it, and they're doing quite a good job. Um, they're driving forward with it, and this is one of a whole lot of initiatives. They've got Sky Go, which effectively is branching out from your TV package and allowing you to watch on on all sorts of devices if you're a subscriber. But this is their attempt to break from 20 years of pay TV dish TV in the corner and a layer to get it on Xbox, on mobile, etc. And the background to this, of course, is that uh, uh, the bottom line is that Sky aren't shifting dishes in any uh, in any uh, shape or form at the number that they used to in years gone by. So there's no more growth or very little growth to be had in getting more subscribers. So what they're going to try and do is kind of uh, top up almost. You could say top up TV. It's, it's got a certain ring to it. But but to top up with, uh, with sort of one-off payments from people who aren't prepared to subscribe. But the danger is, if you, as you alluded to, is that People stop subscribing and go for the cheaper option. So it's 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 a tightrope they're walking here. Well, since uh, Sky hit the target that James Murdoch set of 10 million TV subscribers, there, there was perhaps an overfocus both in the press and by analysts on that. But Sky has tried to sort of sweep under the mat uh, the, the TV side of things, and that's simply because they're only putting on a few thousands, well, tens of thousands, uh, 25,000 in the latest quarter to the end of December. So they're looking at other ways. Uh, other ways. They're looking at uh, triple play, sell more broadband, sell more telephony, and part. Part of that is moving into new areas. So Now TV, which was launched in July, but didn't get any marketing spend until uh, until October. In the last three months of the year, Now TV put on twenty five thousand customers. Now they're not going to be paying big subscription money, you know, forty pounds a month. But uh, there's growth there, and so they're looking beyond TV. Sam, how do you consume your TV? Are, are you uh, are you pay TV outside of the license fee, of course? Uh, and if so, how? Um, we're very much a Sky household, actually, um, but we. I'm thinking about my children, actually, the next generation, and I think that's possibly as well what Sky have got one eye to, is having a, a flexible model. But my 12-year-olds uh, rarely watch live TV. It's all on demand, it's all pre-recorded, and it's all from the Skybox or the iPlayer uh, or through the uh, PlayStation. They find it odd to actually make an appointment to sit down at 7 o'clock to watch something. They don't understand why you don't just record it and watch it when you want Interestingly, though, their media consumption model will change because they are as at home watching stuff on YouTube that they like or finding it on the Internet as sitting in the living room and finding it on all the different devices we've got connected to our TV. So it's um, in the in the short term, you can see what Sky are doing. But in the longer term, I think they're going to have to try lots of different models to retain this audience because the loyalty of the uh, younger generation to one broadcast or one subscription package just isn't going to be there, is it? I think, uh, well, uh, we were next going to talk about Netflix, and I think, Mark, uh, Netflix Chief Executive Reed Hastings is going to be delighted to hear about the viewing habits of, of Sam's children because this, uh, this is exactly what is after. It's, it's going to be a big weekend for them because they've got a, a, new, well, a, a new drama they've produced, um, House of Cards, which is a remake of the the classic BBC series with Ian Richardson, uh, and that's going to debut on Friday. And they're, um, they're 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 gambling a lot on this. Tell us tell us why it's so, why it's so important to the uh, to Netflix. Well, Netflix has been the cause of a bit of a, a revolution in the way people watch film in the, in the US. About six years ago, they launched an online service. They've grown to about 30 million um, subscribers globally. Most most of those are in the States, but they're on an aggressive expansion strategy. So now they're looking at TV. What can we do with TV? So they've invested um, $100 million reportedly in two series, and they're launching it on Friday night. And um, they're doing it with a difference. You'll be able to watch the entire series, bang, right there. You can download it. You can do the whole thing. So this has got a lot of people to flutter. Will it 
it be uh, a move that will 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 signal a sinking of the way we we watch TV, or will there be there won't be any talk about factor? Will there? There isn't going to be a week after week of shows where you, you you might see things covered in papers or people talk about it. it. Could all happen in one go. So there's a lot of talk about what what this might mean and and where it might go. Um, they are planning to do about five original commissions this year. House of Cards has by far uh, got the most coverage, um, but the question is really whether or not it's a sustainable model. Um, $100 million sounds like a lot of money. They can't do that every time. So there are some who have been talking to me who say that it's more, more of a marketing tool and are certainly getting their column inches out of it. Yeah, House of Cards will star uh, Kevin Spacey and is produced by uh, David Fincher. Uh, Sam, are you excited about it? I am, but I think that they're also looking at what uh, Sky did with Sky Atlantic and, and commissioned all that fantastic original drama, which was Boardwalk Empire and Blue Bloods um, and The Newsroom, and they outbid the BBC for, for Mad Men. And, and what Netflix have done, really, they're a bit like a poacher-turned-gamekeeper, so they'll be getting the subscription fee plus the, the licensing for, for it being their own original content you know so I think it's quite clever whether they will be able to sustain it it's quite expensive but Netflix has Breaking Bad you know it's got a lot of really great American series content on it at the moment but they're expensive they're really expensive I read somewhere um, that the pilot episode of Boardwalk Empire that was uh, directed by Martin Scorsese cost 18 million dollars and that was just for the pilot episode Sam Steele Mark Sweeney thanks both Mark Sweeney's now left us, probably off to finish decorating his front room, but I'm delighted to say that his chair has been filled by Media Guardian columnist and much else beside Professor Roy Greenslade. Roy, thanks for joining us. We'll start, Roy, with the Sunday Times, whose acting editor Martin Evans apologised unreservedly to Jewish community leaders over a Gerald Scarf cartoon it published on Holocaust Memorial Day. The Scarf illustration, in case you didn't see it, featured Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu wielding a blooded knife building a wall using what appeared to be the blood of Palestinians. The Board of Deputies of British Jews described it as appalling, and Rupert Murdoch later said it was grotesque. Um, Roy, let's start with you first. What did you make of the cartoon and its timing? How does this sort of thing come about? Uh, well, uh, I'm not surprised that Scarf did it. I mean, he's well known for uh, for taking risks, and um, but I don't think that he could have thought that there uh, was an anti-Semitic message there. I think he really genuinely does feel that the Palestinians have suffered. Um, I think the problem is it's the equivalence factor. Doing it especially on Holocaust Memorial Day meant that people were bound to think that this in some way equated what the uh, the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians with what happened to Jews in the war. And, of course, there is no equivalence with that. Uh, we can't really ever say whatever uh, happens at the moment in the Middle East that there is that equivalence. And I think that was the difficulty he faced. Now, I'm sure he didn't think about that. So let me tell you a little bit about how these things happened, because I was on the Sunday Times and uh, watched week upon week as Gerald Scarf delivered his cartoon. I expect nowadays he probably sends it by screen. But in those days, he would come into the office and show it only to the editor, Andrew Neil in those days. So I rather imagine that the same system persists and that it was seen by Martin Evans, the temporary acting editor of the Sunday Times, uh, who probably did that on many occasions when he stood in for the previous editor, uh, John Witherow, and he passed it 
uh, would have passed it, would have seen it, and probably thought it was okay. And it was very noticeable, John, that when he was first challenged about this, he stood fair square behind Gerald Scarf and said, well, he's a man who has these strong opinions, and um, uh, you know, it seemed okay to us. He had to change his mind uh, when he saw that the big boss, Rupert Murdoch, uh, had tweeted that it was grotesque and an offensive uh, cartoon and apologised for it, and then he had to change his line. Very, very embarrassing situation for an editor. Yes, that's right. The Sunday Times initially said it was uh, typically robust of, uh, of Gerald Scarf. Yes. Sam, what did you make of it? Did you think it was anti-Semitic, or did you think it was all about the timing? I think it's all about the timing. I, I think the problem is that everyone's focused on Gerald Scarf, and nobody's saying, well, who was the, the person that put it in the paper on that day? Because it was two things collided to create the fire in this case. What's interesting as well is the fact that uh, Rupert Murdoch can tweet about something in one of his papers uh, and completely circumnavigate the editor of that paper and um, and publicly humiliate him. But it's a great example of the new media landscape that we live in at the moment, which, as somebody I know said, was like being a cartographer in a volcanic landscape. So, you know, even a few years ago, you wouldn't have been undermined by your proprietor um, who would pip you at the post. You know, there would have been a, a, a chain of discussion and, and it would have been agreed what was the party line and what somebody was going to say and who was going to say it. But now everyone can say what they think as they think it. Um, and I think that's really quite interesting. But subsequent events... Uh, which in which led Martin uh, Evans to have to go to the British Board of Deputies and humble himself and apologise, which I'm sure he did sincerely. Um, but it, he, he did that because his employer demanded it. And therefore, he is not an autonomous editor. He is a creature of Rupert Murdoch. And it showed once again how Rupert Murdoch runs his empire. He is uh, the Sun King and what he says goes. OK, well... Also this week, former BBC Director General Greg Dyke, satirist Rory Bremner and filmmaker Michael Aptib were among people who put their name to a letter to The Times about the future of press regulation. Um, Roy, what did they have to say? Uh, well, they were urging uh, that regulation wouldn't affect uh, journalism, uh, mainly because they work in an area which has been highly regulated, broadcasting. Um, and yet, as they pointed out, um, broadcasters have been able to uh, investigate and bring to public attention matters that haven't been brought to the attention of newspapers. I suppose they're probably thinking of the Jimmy Savile affair. But I think it also shows uh, that, and, and, and by the way, some broadcasters who gave evidence to Leveson didn't say that. Uh, Mark Thompson didn't seem to be as keen as they are. But I think what we're seeing is um, that this is another example of the way in the post-Leveson report days of a lineup in which broadcasters broadly are taking a pro-regulation view, uh, media academics broadly are taking a pro-regulation view, and they are standing foursquare against um, print editors and print journalists who are maintaining that any kind of regulation would be an inhibition of press freedom. Sam, what have you made of the toing and froing we've seen since, uh, since the Leveson report was published? The press seems to have just run itself uh, in a way that, that other broadcasting, because it developed in the, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, um, was subject to, to stricter regulation, whereas the press has just been rattling along, you know, since the 17th, 18th century, before that, earlier than that, but, but hasn't really been subject to any... Oh, oh well, well, no, Sam, my objection was going to be that, in fact, until about, uh, say we say... 1855 the press was still licensed until that point but I think 
it's the point in reverse, in fact. From 1855 onwards, newspapers have seen themselves as being absolutely against any involvement of the state, having suffered licensing, suffered a long period in which editors and publishers, printers were sent to jail, and some of them suffered very badly. That, Although that's not, of course, in their memory, their view is that having freed themselves from the state in 1855, they are not going back to that. And that's the sort of key point that they keep saying, suggesting that there is an impossible situation created in which you give the state any or or at least politicians any chance at all to say what should and shouldn't happen in terms of newspapers that's the real problem yeah i think that uh, uh, thank you for correcting me roy but that does presuppose that in the 170 subsequent years you know we haven't learned to come up with better rulemaking processes, really. And and the point about the broadcasters, obviously, is this with the advent of TV in the sort of um, 50s, we did manage to come up with regulations that work and, and work really well. And that's why all these broadcasters are saying, but I don't understand why the press is against it. We have free speech in TV and radio broadcasting, but, but we also have real code of conducts that we have to abide by. And the, the better rulemaking process that the government's come up with, Roy, is, is a royal charter. Um, is this any closer to becoming a reality or do you think this is going to be put on the, on the back burner too and we'll come up with another solution? Well we know that there are massive uh, behind the scenes uh, conversations going on at the political level um, and among uh, editors and publishers on the other side and sometimes together uh, and of course we've got uh, any numbers, batteries of lawyers involved in this process too. I think the problem is not so much I- even whether it was a charter but over the status of the verifier Um, of this whole process and whether this verified group or verified body or verified person is uh, then enshrined in statute or not and that remains the problem but I mean underlying this John is a much bigger problem and that is how we organize what we might call the third arm of the new regulator Uh, in other words the arbitral arm and that is now throwing up all sorts of problems and have caused a big split among publishers. Publishers of regional and, uh, and local papers feel that this will be a huge on-cost to them because people will inevitably, when they make a complaint, say, oh, if I can get money out of the arbitral arm, I'm going to go that route. And the cost of arbitration is huge. It's like £2,000 a day for the arbitrator. Sometimes you'll want three arbitrators. Local papers just can't afford that. Uh, so I And that is an unresolved problem. And so you've got the problem of whether there'll be statute, but you've also now got the problem of structure, and these things are not going to be worked out quickly. Well, plenty more to come on that, of course, in the weeks ahead. Uh, but also this week, Roy, breaking news was that um, IPC Media is going to cut 150 jobs, which is um, 8% of its workforce in the UK. And that's uh, IPC, which publishes Marie Claire, Ideal Home, and uh, In Style and Now magazine, among many others. Yes. Well, very sad, of course, we're seeing the decline of the print industry, as we know. Um, Magazines have stood out far longer uh, in that process. But this has really been ordered by their uh, US owner, Time Warner, Time Inc., have decided that 500 jobs across the world should go. And so they've obviously been given their quota, which is 150 jobs. But the, you know, the problem here is not that there are not readers for magazines. The problem is that advertisers are fleeing. And that's particularly acute in the United States. And look at Time magazine itself. You know, it, this, this has got the field to itself now that Newsweek has collapsed. Its last print issue was last December. And it's still got a high level of readers, but the number of pages 
has gone down dramatically because people are just not advertising in it. And several magazines are suffering in that way. And so now the chicken comes home to roost here in, in London. There are no idea about where these jobs will go, whether there'll be editorial jobs, whether it'll affect even the status and uh, continuance of some magazines. At uh, uh, the very early days, and, um, the memo only went out at, uh, at midday on uh, Thursday uh, from the chief executive, Sylvia Orton. So there's a, there's a lot we don't know yet. Roy, thank you very much. Next up, we'll talk TV. Now, Roy has left us, and uh, glad to say we're joined by The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost. The chair in the studio is spinning around more often than a seat on The Voice. Vicky, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. So, uh, this week, one new series and one departing series. Where do you want to start? Let's start with the new series. Let's start with the exciting things, uh, which is the following... Uh, which has come to Sky Atlantic, which is a US import, which stars Kevin Bacon. Uh, and he's chasing a serial killer who he once wrote a book about. And uh, so there's some interplay between him and the killer, basically. And the killer is a lit, is an English lit grad. And, you know, it's kind of quite, it, it really quite wants to be sort of posh HBOS kind of crime drama. It's very bloody. It's really violent. You know, it's sort of got all the hallmarks of kind of a high end uh, kind of cable drama, if you like. But I'm afraid I'm not much of a fan, despite Kevin Bacon, who, of course, is great. Um, this, to me, feels a bit like something that desperately wants to be uh, a show that it isn't. Um, I sort of take slight offence that there's only woman, one woman on screen who has any lines in the first episode who isn't actually a victim of some kind. And it all feels a bit contrived to me, a bit bloody for the sake of it. It, it doesn't quite work, which, which is a shame, I think, because this is, you know, Kevin Bacon coming on to telly and you'd sort of hope it would be great. And I love a procedural crime drama as much as the next person, but it really didn't do it for me. So not a very big following for the following? Not for me, not for me, but I think it did good numbers for Sky Atlantic when it launched, so maybe other people like it more. Uh, I just thought it was sort of style over substance a little bit, really, although I quite like the central conceit, and I do like Kevin Bacon. It just doesn't really come together, I think. Sam, you a big Bacon fan? <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I see. No, I'm uh, I'm not a massive Kevin Bacon uh, fan. Uh, I'm a bit ambivalent about him, to be honest. I am getting a little bit um, overloaded with American procedural crime dramas. You could be forgiven for thinking that America was just one big seething mass of serial killers, really, with Criminal Minds, CSI, um, Dexter. You know, it's just it's. It's a bit overload now. We need to send in Scott and Bailey. That's what we need to do. Send in Scott and <laughs> Bailey immediately and they can take over US television. What do you think? Mm, I like the sound of that. They could be sort of um, uh, internal affairs, investigating bacon. <laughs> That'd be brilliant. Let's make it happen. Scott Bailey and bacon. Who I, I want to represent me if ever I'm uh, wrongly accused of like a crime a, I did not commit. It sounds yes. like a breakfast menu, actually, yeah. Scott <laughs> Bailey and bacon. Uh, I have Scott and Bailey, but no, hold the bacon. I'm a vegetarian. Um, but far more wholesome is The Great British Menu, which, yes. does that include vegetarian options? Uh, rarely, I think, actually. Yeah, actually, I don't know if I've ever seen a vegetarian option. Well, presumably. The Great British Menu is this weird thing. I digress. Thing. Yes, slightly. Yes. This is on BBC Two, The Great British Menu. <laughs> yes, which isn't The Great British Bake Off, we should uh, be clear. It's not God. kind of that kind of massive, massive following. But it's that, this thing that sort of uh, goes along on BBC Two quite happily and just quite you know perfectly good figures and every year and this year they're doing it for comic relief uh where they have to so basically you get chefs not quite famous chefs as i've heard them described as which is slightly naughty but 
probably true actually little chefs um yeah (laughs) yes little chefs who all compete uh against each other to cook for their region in a banquet at the end it's quite contrived but it's you know it's also quite watchable but it's also you know the most self-important show on television there is no show that takes itself more seriously than great british menu which makes it a bit weird because they're doing it for comic relief this year and it's meant to be all about having fun and being witty but uh equally they all really want to win and beat each other so uh, yeah it's a slightly odd thing Anthony Bourdain is the only TV chef that I would like to watch because he swears in a nice way, not in a Gordon Ramsay way. <laughs> How grumpy you are. How grumpy people are in this room. But I think um, I think Bake Off for Comic Relief, actually, which was, I think, last week, uh, actually did work really well because it's got, the show's quite charming. Uh, it, well, some people think, lots of people think the show is quite charming, me included. Um, and I guess the comedians doing it badly is also quite a charming thing. And I think it's sort of, Came came off quite nice, nicely, actually. And big numbers, so, you know. Yeah. Does good business. And the Mary Berry story, which is on BBC Two. Three well, million viewers. I know, I know. I'm sli- I slightly don't really understand that. It was kind of a gentle look at a nice person's life, which, you know, Mary you Berry You don't get that in is, the following. Yeah, but Mary Berry's a charming woman, but I don't really think... I, I don't really think that makes great television, if I'm honest. There'll be a biopic cover on BBC Four. Oh, no, they don't do that stuff anymore, do they? No, no, terrible. I mean, I was thinking last night, it's such a shame that there isn't going to be more homegrown drama on BBC Four. It is a real problem, I think. But what do they do on BBC Four, Vicky? Well, it's funny you should ask me that, John, because (laughs) what they do very well is uh, Scandinavian imports, of course, and we're coming up to the finale of Borgen this evening, uh, this evening, this weekend, sorry. Well, if you're watching on Saturday... Yes, exactly. If you're listening on Saturday, it's oh, yes. tonight. If you're watching, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, so Borgen finishes this weekend. And I think it's been quite an interesting second season because actually it's been quite up and down. I know Borgen is very loved by me, among many other people. But I thought the first two episodes are quite ropey, particularly the first one. And actually, I thought seven and eight, uh, which was last week's, if you're up to date with it, were actually a bit rubbish. They were sort <gasps> of, you know, Africa. It was meant to be this uh, about world. Dip- diplomacy and about Africa and it was all very broad brush and and I slightly felt that as soon as they started speaking English I stopped liking it so much which worries me I've, I've got to say 7 and 8 were awful but I do know there's a return to form for the finale so if you thought 7 and 8 were bad like I did you should keep watching this weekend because I actually found uh, 9 and 10 very satisfying watch indeed and in fact if you go to the Guardian TV website you can find an interview uh, with the writer of uh, creator of Borgen, Adam Price, who is also really weirdly a TV chef, so he's provided a recipe to have a Borgen feast in, before the finale on Saturday night. A great Scandinavian menu. Exactly. Yeah, that will be on <laughs> BBC Two next week. And finally, this week, just time for the Media Monkey quiz. First up, what's happening in this clip? And what about... Uh, sorry, did you want to say something? Sorry, I just saw a mouse just come up. Oh, my God! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> how horrible! Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I'm live on the radio squealing and saying how horrible and kneeling on my chair because there's a mouse in the room. Oh, no. We're on a webcam. If you've never watched the programme online, on, now is definitely the time. Don't tell me you can see it. I don't care. Please stop. Just oh, get it out of here. You came out, then. Oh, God! Oh! I don't want to carry on doing this programme. If there's a please somebody get rid of the mouse. If it walks on my hand, I'm resigning. <laughs> Any takers? 
Sheila Fogarty reinforcing every female stereotype in the book uh, by being squeamish. But I, I think it's funny. One billion pounds it cost to build Salford and they didn't build it mouseproof. They didn't mouseproof it at all. I'd ask for my money back. That mouse now got its own show on Six Music. <laughs> I, I quite like that it was Sheila Fogarty, though, because I really like her as a broadcaster because she's really tough. You know, she is tough with people when she questions them. <laughs> and I sort of like that it was her who was like going, oh, my God, a mouse, a mouse, a mouse. It, it, it amused me. Once, you know, a squirrel came in my house, in my kitchen, and it wouldn't leave for 36 hours. So I am blasé about mice, frankly. <laughs> I had to catch a pigeon once. Did you? It was stuck in our lounge. Yeah, it's very light. Probably shouldn't be surprised. That's how they get off the ground. But there was a, uh, I ruffled a few feathers that day, I'll tell you that. Right, oh, question number two. John. Where did Radio 4 claim Albert Speard spent 20 years? In Spandau Ballet. Let's hear if that's correct. At 2.15, Patrick Malahide stars as Albert Speer, or Prisoner Number 5, as he was known throughout his 20 years in Spandau Ballet. In, in Spandau Prison, rather. Albert Speer's <laughs> Walk Around the World is in half an hour. As uh, someone on Twitter said, not true, but Radio Gold. Yeah, it's very good. And finally, question number three. Um, who did Sir David Attenborough anoint as his natural history successor this week? Brian Cox. That's right. The actor, unlikely. Uh, the veteran Scottish Hollywood... Oh, no, hang on. Professor Brian Cox. Yes. The particle physicist. Yes. I thought it was a really interesting choice for him to make, actually. So I know Brian Cox is sort of fronting this now kind of uh, biology programme, really, rather than a physics programme. Uh, but I still thought he wouldn't necessarily be who you would think of as Attenborough's successor. I thought mm. it was interesting. He still teaches. He still teaches first-year students at Manchester University, where he is a professor... Uh, and as a result, they've had to uh, raise the bar for their intake of physics students. It's now the hardest course to get on in the country. It's, it asks for higher grades than Oxford and Cambridge because everybody wants to be in his class. Bless. That is amazing. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, congratulations to the winner of our quiz on her first appearance to uh, Sam Steele and also to Vicky Frost. I'm never going to win the quiz, am I? Oh, no. <laughs> oh terrible. It's a running gag. <laughs> All that remains is for me to thank all our guests this week. That's Sam Steele, Vicky Frost, Roy Greenslade, Mark Sweeney, and, of course, Mr John Myers down the line from Newcastle. You can leave your comments on what you've heard today on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.